Okay, I am uh, going to do an introduction for someone that you know, but I want to go ahead and, and uh, uh, say a few words before uh, Pastor Philip Whitehead preaches. Go ahead and come up, Philip. And um, I am uh, just full of gratefulness for this man. Uh, he is our executive pastor and one that uh, on staff has uh, uh, now been here longer than anybody else on staff. And he really does carry uh, a lot of weight on his shoulders and, and so many, uh, all the ministries of the church. And so I just want to say to him, while I've got you in front of people, thank you, Pastor Philip, for your diligence, your spirit of excellence, and your good work that you do for Living Waters Church and ministry. Let's give this man a big hand. Woohoo! Yeah. This was um, back in the, in the winter months, uh, kind of early winter months. He said, you know, God's really, uh, I'm doing studies and, and so forth in the areas of grace and the themes of grace. And I believe that God's going to want me to uh, teach and preach this at some time. So we wanted to be sure to get that in the calendar. And, and so uh, that's why we set aside this Sunday and next on a grace series uh, called Overwhelming Grace. And I want to tell you, this is really important for us as a body and you as an individual believer. For me, I was in my late 30s, about 37, 38. Well, I started reading a couple books with a a friend of mine who is also a spiritual director. And I learned in in a deeper new way what the grace message really was and is. I needed it desperately. My spiritual walk was full of patterns of of cyclical patterns of guilt, self-condemnation, uh, and also law, law-based thinking and, um, and discouragement. And, and as I studied the Word of God with help in, in these books, I realized, I am free, hallelujah! <laughs> I am free because Jesus paid the price and he poured out on me a grace that but makes me holy and empowers me to walk in obedience to him. And I don't have to live in this spiritual uh, discouragement and cyclical discouragement over and over again. I was set free. This message and this theme that Philip is teaching on today and, and, next, and next Sunday is really important. A scripture uh, that I wanted to read here in relationship to that. Out of Romans 6, it says, uh, verse 13 and 14, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Folks, you're not under law. You're not under that pressure of effort to try to make it work. You're under grace. Lord, I just pray over this message today, over Pastor Philip. I pray, Lord God, for uh, us as a body that you help us break through in our thinking and our our spiritual walk and our hearts and our souls, that we're under grace. Oh, this abundance of grace, of of your love and acceptance and empowerment over us, we're not under law, Lord God. And so, Lord, we are are asking you to give us a revelation of that, Lord God, into our minds, into our hearts and souls. And, Lord God, I, I just pray, Lord, today that Philip, Lord, he is anointed. He's ready to present what you've given to him. Lord, we just pray, Lord, you anoint him during this time. Lead him to what to say. And may our ears and hearts be anointed to hear and receive in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. 
I've already made up my mind the next time he preaches, I'm going to preach for him before he starts the sermon. So I'm, I'm going to take as much as I can right out of your mouth. Let me ask this question. How many of you have the same testimony that he just gave where you were in this cycle of law and grace, law and grace, law and grace? Anybody? I, I did too, and I'll speak to that in a little bit. But that, that is a stumbling block for us sometimes. And where that comes from, I really don't know. But I do know this. God has overwhelming grace prepared for you. And I'm going to show you how that works today. I hope you'll show up my, show my little slide up there. Overwhelming grace. Not just a little bit, but a lot. A river full of it. An ocean full of it. Now, the book of Romans is perhaps my favorite book of the Bible. It's for many believers their favorite book because it lays out so many wonderful theological truths about Jesus. His plan of salvation. Uh, growing and maturing in Christ, living in the power of the Spirit. It talks a lot about the nation of Israel and where they fit in the whole plan of God and, and so much more. But I want to read several verses from Romans chapter 5. And for time's sake, I need to pick up in the middle of Paul's discourse where he compares the first man, Adam, and his works of unrighteousness to the works of Jesus who Paul calls the second Adam. And his righteous works of salvation, which are intended to rectify the curse that the first Adam brought into the world. Now, I'm reading from the Amplified Bible because that was what I was reading from the day God spoke to me first about this back in December. And it will have phrases that scholars and theologians have added which amplify and enlarge the meaning of words and phrases, especially for those of us who really don't read Greek or Hebrew, we don't understand that. These extra lines and phrases will often uh, modify and enlarge your understanding. So that's what I was reading from that day, and I want to use that for our reading today. So it'll be on the screen, but it's uh, Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 15. Read along silently as I read aloud. But the free gift of God is not like the trespass, because the gift of grace overwhelms the fall of man. For if many died by one man's trespass, that is, Adam's sin, much more abundantly did God's grace and the gift that comes by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to benefit the many. Nor is the gift of grace like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment following the sin resulted from one trespass and brought condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift resulted from many trespasses and brought justification. The release from sin's penalty for those who believe. For if by the trespass of the one Adam, death reigned through the one Adam, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in eternal life through the one Jesus Christ. I hope that's getting your motor running. Verse 18, So then as through one trespass, Adam's sin 
uh, there resulted condemnation for all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For just as through one man's disobedience, his, his fear, failure to hear, his carelessness, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous and acceptable to God and brought into right standing with Him. But the law came to increase and expand the awareness of the trespass by defining and unmasking sin. But where sin increased... God's remarkable, gracious gift of grace, His unmerited favor has surpassed it and increased all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness, which brings eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you say amen, church? Marvelous word of God here. The gift of grace, which he speaks about here, is Jesus. Let's get that understood right now. The gift of grace is Jesus. Grace is not a gift found outside of him. Grace is not an idea. Grace is not a concept or a construct. No, grace is a person. Grace is the essence of Jesus. So don't come to grace. Do not seek for grace to be applied to your sin. Grace is not something to desire in and of itself. Seek for Jesus, and you will find grace. Now, for today and then next week, we're going to do uh, what was intended to be maybe three parts, but I've just narrowed it down to two. So today, we're going to talk about overwhelming grace. And next week, I'm going to put together vindicating grace and reigning grace. You don't want to miss those because those are also important in the understanding of what Christ has done for us in extending grace to us. But as we begin our journey, let's establish the fact that mankind is undone, depraved, and sinful. And we're part of that mass of humanity. And no matter how good or nice we are, we cannot save ourselves from the moral corruption that invades our hearts. We need Jesus, and we need grace. The hard fact is that we owe a debt we cannot pay. A debt that we were born into, and apart from Jesus, will never be rescued from. But Jesus Christ paid that debt with his very life, because Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. It is entirely his effort and his doing. The part we play in the whole scheme of things is to believe on Him and receive what He's accomplished for us. Now, that may seem like the most absurd contract. It's so one-sided, so unfair, so unjust in a way. But that's what makes grace, grace. Grace is only grace when it's undeserved and unmerited. So a simple definition of grace describes it as the unmerited favor of God toward man. And grace is not something that originated with the New Testament or the coming of Christ. God has always expressed his grace, this undeserved, undeserved favor, toward men as individuals and toward men as nations. The Old Testament uses the word hen, often in phrases like 
favor in God's sight or to find favor in the eyes of the Lord. When you see that phrase in the Old Testament, it's talking about grace. This assumes the notion of God as a watchful master, a trusted king, with the one who is finding favor. And he's extending this favor to a servant or an employee. The concept first occurs in Genesis 6, verse 8. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. The context is that the Lord was grieved at how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. You'll find it in Genesis 6, 5. And this statement about the Lord's loathing toward man's sin followed by his promise that he will wipe out humankind from the face of the earth. Well, it's going to happen. But Noah is described as having found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And he's going to be excused from this wrath of God. He's going to be rescued. You will find many other individuals in the Old Testament that found favor with the Lord. You have Moses and Gideon and Samuel, just to name three prominent men right there at the beginning of the Scriptures who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But remarkably, that expression is never used with the wonderful king David. It's never said that David found favor in the eyes of the Lord, although we do understand he was favored by God. Just read the stories and you'll see. But there's this wonderful passage in 2 Samuel 15 where Absalom, David's son has accomplished a coup d'etat against his father, the king. And David has fled the city of Jerusalem, and Absalom has illegally taken control of the throne and the government of Israel. And in a remarkable display of trust in God and in the sovereignty of God, David tells Zadok, the priest in 2 Samuel 15, that he finds favor in the Lord's eyes, and that if it's God's will, God will bring him back. But if he does not, then David is ready, as he puts it, to let him do to me whatever seems good to him. You see, David recognizes that the unmerited favor of God has to do with God's choice, not his. Grace in the Old Testament is just as much an act of God's sovereign will as grace in the New Testament. And any grace that you and I receive, experience, or live in is strictly the choice of God. You can't earn it, you can't work for it, you can't deserve it, and you certainly cannot demand it. Now the good news, listen, the good news is that God has already decided in your favor. His decision has already been made to extend grace to you, for you to find favor in His sight. It's already been completed. Grace, this unmerited favor, is extended to all of you today because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's yours for the taking. You don't have to beg, work, or scheme for it. You don't have to make a deal with God. Just receive the gift by believing in the work of Christ and believe that he loves you enough to offer the gift to you. Someone has said that you don't even have to ask him to forgive you. He already has. Now, for us that might seem a little blasphemous, a little 
twisted in the truth there. But think about it. He's already forgiven all men. The only way to appropriate it is to receive it. That's how you get the grace of God. This overwhelming grace. It wouldn't hurt you to ask for it, but you don't have to because it's already been extended to you. It might be good to just say, Lord, I repent of my sin and my wicked ways. I receive the grace of Jesus today. I, for, I receive the forgiveness of my sins today. That will open the windows of heaven to you and let grace be poured out. We've now laid out a simple definition of God's grace, His unmerited favor given to you through Christ Jesus. I know that's not a serious theological proposition that I've laid out, but I think I've made it clear and that this grace is an unmerited favor. But why is it unmerited? Let's look at the phrase that's in the verse, that first verse we read, called the fall of man. Let's remind ourselves of what this verse says. But the free gift of God is not like the trespass because the gift of grace overwhelms the fall of man. Now, if you've been in church for many years, you will know what this is about. But, you know, with the biblical illiteracy we have in the world today, and it's getting worse by the day, a pastor cannot assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. Elementary things that we've understood for our, all of our lives sometimes are brand new ideas. And even if people do understand it, they may not accept it. They may not think that the fall of man really affects them. They've never con contemplated that. But listen to what Matthew Henry wrote on the, uh, this passage of Romans here. Matthew Henry says, It is sin that breeds the quarrel between us and God. It is sin that breeds the quarrel between us and God. Did you know you've, you at one time had a quarrel with him? <laughs> he says it creates not only a strangeness, but an enmity. Not only are we, do we not know God, but we're enemies of God. We're adversaries of God if we've never received His grace. He says the holy righteous God cannot in honor be at peace with a sinner while he continues under the guilt of sin. God doesn't know you. You don't know God. But once you receive the free gift and believe on the work of Jesus, then grace is yours. Paul in chapter 5 takes the time to set up a logical and well-thought-out position on man's fall into sin, on the law of God and the power of death within sin. He talks about salvation and justification and the subsequent joyful reconciliation that comes from death, the death and resurrection of the man Christ Jesus. He builds a case like a, like a lawyer uh, on the ravages that sin has taken on the human race, all down through the epochs of time. Death comes as a result of sin, and that death, he says in verse 12, spread to all people. And no one, and I quote, no one is able to stop it. You cannot control it. And he establishes that the law reveals sin before it's, it, it spells out in detail what sin is, and then it exposes it. He establishes the fact that even though there was no law in the time between Adam and Moses, death still reigned 
in men's lives. Sin overwhelmed mankind. Even though there was no law, death still reigned over men. It permeated every part of life here on earth. Even creation was damaged because of sin. Adam's sin, which many may call original sin, and I want to talk about that in a minute, set in motion the destructive reign and terror of death, which all men in all times have tried to avoid. Listen to Dr. Wayne Grudem's thoughts in his systematic theology on this topic. He says that inherited sin, and that's a different set of words, is used rather than the more common designation original sin because the phrase original sin seems to be misunderstood to refer to Adam's first sin rather than the sin that is ours as a result of Adam's fall. Now, I don't want this to get complicated, so let me see how simple I can make it. We talk about Adam's original sin, and he did. But he says if you use that, most people will think, oh, that's when he took the bite of the fruit. That's when he, oh, when he listened to Eve and, and did that first act. And he said that's not what we mean by original sin. Let me go on. Our legal guilt, our legal guilt is inherited directly from Adam and not through a line of ancestors like our parents or grandparents. You didn't inherit sin from mom and dad. You didn't inherit your sin nature from mom and dad. You inherited it from Adam. And he was the original sinner. And Grudem says, Paul is telling us here that there is original sin in Adam and there's original sin in you. All right, hang on to those thoughts. The guilt is ours because it belonged to our first father, Adam, and we inherited it from him. Let's look at Romans 5.19 again. For just as through one man's disobedience, his failure to hear, his carelessness, the many were made righteous. So through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous and acceptable to God and brought into right standing. Paul says explicitly that through the disobedience of this one man, many were made sinners. Grudem says when Adam sinned, God thought of all who would descend from Adam as sinners. It set in motion a horrible thing. It broke down all of the purity of mankind, all of creation. It destroyed it. Though we did not yet exist, God, looking into the future and knowing that we would exist, began thinking of us as those who were guilty like Adam. All members of the human race were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the garden. And I'm continuing to quote Grudem here. As our representative, Adam sinned, and God counted us guilty as well as Adam. You might not like that, but that is the way it is. This sometimes is called the doctrine of original sin, but the sin spoken of does not refer to Adam's first sin, but to the guilt and the tendency to sin with which we are born. You get it? It is original in that it comes from Adam, and it is also original in that we have it from the beginning of our existence as persons. But it is still our sin. 
not Adam's sin that Paul means. Let me illustrate it this way. Psalm 51.5, look at these words with me. Behold, David, this is David writing, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And as David looked back over his life, he realized that he had a sin nature and had been sinful from the beginning of his life. But this beginning, he says, goes back to conception. Notice the phrase, in sin did my mother conceive me. This does not mean he was conceived out of wedlock or that he was conceived illegitimately. It means that at conception, while in the womb, he had his sinful disposition already there. This is a powerful statement, my friends. We need to understand this. This is why grace needs to come and overwhelm who you are as a sinner. Our sin nature does not manifest at birth or in our first disobedient act as a child. Our sin nature is from conception. Now, I want you to feel the weight and the power of Adam's sin here. How it wrecked everything. And I want you to feel the weight of your own sin. That was such a cataclysmic event back then. It, it affected every man. And you and I are no exceptions. And without the work of Christ, all is hopeless. All is lost. I want to paint a dark picture here of the power of sin and the fall of man. So when we speak of the fall of man, we're speaking about our fall. I'm describing you. I'm describing me. What does Paul mean when he writes, but the free gift of God is not like the trespass? I'm going to show you. I hope I, I do it well. I'm going to show you what I feel like the Lord showed me to help you understand that. I'm going to illustrate it like this. Take an old-fashioned balance scale. I've got a picture of one here to show you. If someone back in 60, 70, 100 years ago and further back wanted to buy a pound of something, the merchant would put a 16-ounce weight on one side of that scale and then he'd start putting the item on the other side. Let's say you went into a store and you wanted to buy a pound of butter. Merchant would put a 16-ounce weight over here, and then he would take his paddle and put it in the butter and start scooping it onto the other side of the scale. And when the scale came into balance and the needle was straight up and they looked exactly the same, the customer could understand, okay, could feel confident, I've got a pound of butter there. I've got 16 ounces of butter. They didn't have pre-measured things back then, so you had to measure it out. And that could only be true if the weight the merchant was using was true. If he had a 14-ounce weight and you didn't know it, you'd be cheated every time you went to buy. What we're describing here and illustrating with these, this balance scale is the idea of fairness or equality. It, it's equal. It, it measures exactly the same. We might say that the weight used to measure the butter or the item, was a just weight, a standard weight, a right weight, a righteous weight, because it was true. 
It was just. It was a measurement that was accurate, and the weight of the butter sold exactly matched the just weight on the scale. But what if the merchant added a little more butter, and it tipped just a little bit more in the favor of the consumer? You'd say, wait, wait, stop right there. Uh, I don't want to buy any more than a pound. Oh, don't worry, I'm just going to charge you for a pound. Put another one on there. The scale would show the heavier weight was on the butter side of the scale. Have you ever heard of a baker's dozen? You know what a baker's dozen is? Back in the day, when you'd go to the confectionery, to the local baker, he might, because you were a faithful consumer, a faithful customer, he might give you a 13th roll or a 13th pastry or donut. He might even put 14 in there to bless you, to gift you, to say thank you for being a loyal customer. It was the baker's joy to give you more than you expected. So we cannot really understand nor appreciate the true nature of overwhelming grace by just making the scale that is so heavily weighed against you in sin just come to balance, to equality. That's not what Christ did. Man's sin is so massive, so vast, so controlling, so imprisoning, so atrocious, yet Christ's death on the cross overwhelms the entire fall of man. Christ's work of redemption annihilates and overpowers sin and its consequences. It swamps and floods sin like a gigantic wave of the ocean. We sang that this morning in one of the songs. The gift of grace utterly defeats, routes, conquers, and vanquishes the foe that is sin and its consequences of death, hell, and the grave. It prevails in triumph over the devil, subdues our flesh to the righteousness of God, crushes the head of our enemy, shatters his teeth, and turns our stone-hard hearts and makes them soft. And he brings our sin nature to its knees in repentance and overpowers us with his love, kindness, and mercy. Can you say amen? amen. That's the grace that overwhelms the sin. There's a victor here, and his name is Jesus. The gift of grace will stir your heart toward God. It'll sweep you up to his glory, stun you with his wonder and beauty, shake you to your shoes, and dazzle you with his glorious power. That grace will leave you speechless. Take your breath away. It'll blow your mind and cause you to fall at his feet in adoring worship. We were once enemies of God, but now by overwhelming grace, we are lovers of God. I'm thankful for that. The gift of grace overwhelms the fall of man in us. God, come. Gift of grace, come and overwhelm us today. We thank you for that love. We thank you that you did a work that was forever and ever, once and for all. And you said, it's finished. And you broke the back of sin. You broke the back of anxiety. You broke the back of, of a, a debauched life in our undone way. And yes, we were born, conceived in our mother's womb with a sin nature, but you overcame that. 
And we thank you today that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God. Now what brings us to this place of grace? If you've come to it, I just want you to right there take a moment and thank God that he's brought you there. He's brought you there. But if you have not, and I I believe there may be some people in this room online, you have not come to this place of grace. You You don't even know what I'm talking about. But you want it because your life is in shambles. And God wants to set things in order. You talk about shalom? (laughs) That's shalom. The way things ought to be. Let me see if I can help you get there, if you're still struggling. Let's talk about the law, which Pastor Stephen eloquently shared about moments ago in his testimony. One might ask, and I'm going to talk about the law and our goodness. Now you might ask, who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? Who are you to tell me that I was conceived in sin. You don't really need me to do it, but that's what preachers do. There's a, there's a thing in the Bible called the law, and it tells you that you're a sinner. And that law stands over you like a, the shadow of a monument if you don't know great, the grace of God, and it will condemn you. I'm going to show you how that works. God did a wonderful thing for mankind several thousand years ago. He rescued the the nation of Israel out of 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt using a man named Moses. And not long after they were freed, they they were on their way to the promised land, and God said, Moses, I want you to come up on Mount Sinai. I want to visit with you a little bit. And not knowing what he was getting into, Moses went up on the mountain. And he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. By the way, I was Friday I celebrated 40 years of marriage. Miss Susan. 40. 40. That's a a number in the Bible a lot. You hear that. Some of you numerologists know more about that than I do. But he was there 40 days and 40 nights. And while he was there, God gave him All of the law. Well, what is the law? Well, it it encompassed so many things. It encompassed how to worship, all kinds of things to do with animals, and how to build the tabernacle, and it dealt with government, and where different tribes should even camp out when they parked for the night. It, it, It covered a ton of things. Food, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat. Many things. You'll find those in the first five books of the Bible. But there was one special set of law that God gave Moses, and it was so special, God engraved, he chiseled out into the side of the mountain ten commandments. And then he cut them out in a stone tablet, and Moses took those down to the people. And those ten commandments have have controlled and governed much of the decisions of mankind through the years. Our own United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are all built on this thing called the Ten Commandments, which we also call the moral law of God. And the majority of society's citizens are thankful for these moral laws. They teach us that reverence for God is good, idol worship is a bad thing, 
taking the Lord's name in vain is bad, lying, cheating, stealing, or offenses against God and man, murder is, is horrible. These laws actually allow us to go about our daily business without fear of someone stealing from us and raping our children or our wives, murdering us, abusing us in any way. And you say, well, those things still happen. Yes, they do. But because there are laws against those things and there are punishments created against, to, to take care of you if you break those laws, for the most part, part people are deterred from breaking them. Because this punishment, when, when that comes, it's severe. And you don't want to have to go there. And obviously there are still plenty of people in this land that don't mind breaking those laws. They love to break them. But down through the ages, men have tried to justify themselves before God by obeying these laws. They believe that doing good, obeying these laws, staying out of trouble, and being a good person would put them in right standing with God. But Paul tells us in Galatians that the law was not given for that purpose. Remember, one of the biggest issues Jesus faced was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were all about obeying the law and making sure you did too. They walked around forcing you, commenting on whether you broke the law or not. I would have hated to live with those people. But the law and our good obedience to it could never save us and put us in right standing with God. Look at Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So according to the law of God, if you break one of those laws, you will be cursed. If you just break one. He insists that you have to live all of your life and keep them perfectly. Can anyone do that? What, what, what happens to a chain if one link is broken? The chain is broken. And no man could keep this law. And it says if you live by the law, you'll be cursed by the law. And God then gave them animal sacrifices to help them overcome their guilt for breaking the law. And they thought that these animal sacrifices somehow forgave them, which it didn't, because Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. God's law was, to be, was given to us to be like a teacher. And when I read that passage, I think of a teacher I had in the sixth grade. And she could be pretty stern. She would, she would spank your the palm of your hand with a ruler for missing a spelling word on the test. And she would walk around like you just thought she was Miss Grunge, you know, and pop you on the head. I hated that teacher to some degree. But this law is to remind us of the way to live, but correct us when we stray in disobedience. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. He says, God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, meaning the law. Not that covenant, but of the Spirit. For the letter, that is the law, kills. 
but the Spirit gives life. Joseph Prince says this in his book, Destined to Reign. He says, God did not give the law for us to keep. He gave the law to bring man to the end of himself so that he would see his need for a Savior. Galatians 3, 23 through 25, out of the J.B. Phillips translation, I love this translation here, reads like this, Before the coming of faith, we were all imprisoned under the power of the law. With our only hope of deliverance, the faith that was to be shown to us. We didn't even know what faith was at one point. Our parents probably instill a lot of it in us just trying to get us to be good, to change our behavior, and yet there's no grace of Christ in that. But he says, or to change the metaphor, the law was like a strict governess in charge of us until we went to the school of Christ and learn to be justified by faith in Him. Once we had that faith, we were completely free from the governess's authority. Hallelujah. You see, the law of God, this moral law, it won't save you. Your own attempt to keep it, or you push back on it, and you just go do your own thing, that's certainly death. But if you try to keep it, that's still just your own goodness. That will not save you. None of it is good enough. The law and your goodness were never intended to save you. The law was to imprison you, expose you, and let you know that within you there is no good thing. And you can't merit God's redemption and salvation based on your goodness. It's there to govern and control you. But the gift of grace, Jesus, was given to set you free from the law. To set you free from the works of your own strength and your own goodness overwhelming grace is extended to you, not to hold you in check, but to release you into freedom and into a relationship with Christ that will cause you to yearn to love Him, to yearn to obey Him, to desire to please Him out of your heart. Your heart will become changed. Paul says you'll be made into a new creature. We'll be made into the image of Jesus. But if you keep trying and working, and working to change your behavior, it won't work. The morning I read this, in early December, I wrote in my journal, Lord, again, because I've done it before, again I come to you and I laid down all of my efforts to be good. I'm sorry for trying to be a good boy. I give it up. I, all I can trust now is your grace to change me. I quit trying. If you'll come there, that's freedom. You don't have to work. And there's a miracle. Over time, there's a miracle that grace brings. So you see, I, I, I don't have to condemn you. I don't have to tell you you're a sinner. You already know it based on what I've showed you here. And the law was given to do these three things. I don't have them on the board, but just listen. Show you what God is like and what He expects of you. Cast a standard before you that you can never keep. And it's there to condemn you. There's no life in it. There's no life in the law. It's there so that you will come to the end of yourself. It's really there to kill you.
Listen to what Martin Luther, the great preacher of the 1500s, wrote about the purpose of God's law. He says, the law is a mirror to show a person what he's like, a sinner who is guilty of death and worthy of everlasting punishment. What is this bruising and beating by the hand of the law to accomplish this, that we may find the way to grace? Did you know that Jesus told a parable where one of the actors in the parable broke the law of Moses? I love the story of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite parables in the Bible. And I don't have time to get into the whole thing, but remember this. Prodigal son has gone off into the far country. He's wasted all of his father's inheritance. Uh, he's lived in sin. He's, he's slopping pigs. We don't know how long he was gone, but long enough till he was at the bottom of himself. He was at the bottom of the ladder. And he comes to his senses, he comes back to the Father, and he decides he's going to go home and say, I'm sorry, and ask for forgiveness. And if you remember the story, the Father sees him coming a long way off, and some would think that maybe he was just out there waiting for him to come. But he sees him across the hillside over there, and he, he runs to meet him. And he falls on his neck when he reaches the boy. And, and I, can, I can imagine the boy pulling back, maybe even going to his knees and say, Dad, Dad, no, no. Dad, you don't know what I've done. I have broken every law. I have wasted your money. I have lived in sin. You, you, would, you would be so ashamed of me. Dad, I, I know I did wrong, but all I'm asking, would you let me sleep in the bunkhouse? like the servants, and we just pay them the minimum wage you'd pay everybody else. I don't expect any more. Just three meals a day and a place to sleep at night, and I'll be happy. I just need you to forgive me. What's that father do? Picks him up. Says, you're my son. You're my son. I forgive you? Somebody, bring a robe, and let's put it on him. Bring that ring of authority that is on my desk and let's put it on his finger. Somebody go get that fatted calf and kill it because we're going to have a party tonight. My son who was lost has now been found and we're going to rejoice that he's at home. He's come back. Listen to what Joseph Prince says in his book, Destined to Reign. I never thought of this. He says, do you know that the father's behavior is actually contrary to the law of Moses? I found that according to the law, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who refuses to heed his parents, that man is supposed to bring that son to the elders of the city. And all the men of his city are to stone his son to death so that they can put away the evil from them. And all Israel shall fear. That is the law of Moses. That dad broke that law. He said, no, I'm not doing that. I am restoring this young man to his rightful place in sonship. Jesus Christ did not break the law. He fulfilled the law. So that you and I 
could be restored to our rightful place as sonships. Sonship. So how does grace overwhelm the fall of man? And I'm coming around third. Let's talk about this. I'm going to show you three things. He pardons. He gives us a position. And he releases his power. So let's talk about these. If they'll be brief, I won't take a long time with them. Isn't the idea of pardon, let's talk about that one, a wonderful part of our new beginnings in Christ? And when we sin again, after we've already come to Jesus, there's still a pardon that is offered to us. You know, each presidential election cycle, there uh, are a number of people in prisons who are pardoned by the outgoing president. And some they should pardon, some they should not pardon. But this past summer, I remember President Trump pardoning Alice Johnson. I have a picture of her here. Do you remember in the summer uh, when the Republican convention was on TV, she spoke at the, the convention. And she spoke of how Trump had found out that she was in there unjustly. Now, in her late 30s, or 40-ish, she had been caught with uh, drugs on her person. She wasn't selling them, but she did have some drugs, and the police captured her, and she was judged by a very harsh judge, and he put her in prison for the rest of her life because she had some marijuana on her. And of all people, Kim Kardashian heard about this story, looked into it, she contacted the president and said, would you look at this woman's plight? She's, she's trapped. She had become a Christian. She was a pastor to other women in the prison. There's a, there's a tremendous story about Alice Johnson. But I want you to see a little one-minute clip on the day she was released from prison. Turn it up, please. Turn the volume up. I'm feeling no handcuffs, nothing on me. I'm free to hug my family. I'm free to live life. I'm free to start over. I will not waste this second chance in life. I believe that God has given me this second chance so that others may one day have a second chance. So I have an obligation not only to my family who has waited all of these years for me, but an obligation to the people who have been left behind. Amen. That is pardon. Notice how many times she said free. No more handcuffs. That's all she knew going from place to place inside the prison, put handcuffs on her. If we just talk about this, this common fall of man in Adam, this universal fall, we don't really get it. We have to understand the specific fall of man that comes to you and me. This woman committed a crime. She did a, a bad thing. It wasn't just her... The universal fall of man in her, it was a specific thing that she did. The larger, more universal fall of man encompasses all of mankind, all flesh. 
But the more specific fall of man gets personal and deals with us individually. And here's why I've told you that. John Piper, commenting on verse 20 of what we read at the very beginning of the message today, that verse in another translation says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Piper says, so I take it to mean that one crucial function of the law is to turn our original sin into actual transgressions of specific commandments. First, we're guilty in Adam and sinful by nature. Okay, umbrella. And then the law confronts us with the specific will of God. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Love here, love there, forgive. And the effect is that it turns sinful nature into specific sinful acts of transgression. One writer said it well. The law makes little atoms out of us all. Little atoms. You were a little atom with your own sin, your own specific sin. But Jesus cried, it is finished, indicating that the work of redemption was finally complete. Pardoning grace was universally released, now available, potentially, to all men, but he also bore your specific sins on the cross. And the anger of God toward your sin was carried there in his body. The sin of the first Adam was dealt with. And you don't care about that. Adam's done. But your sin, little Adam, was dealt with there too. You are completely forgiven. You have been personally pardoned. Yet, there are believers who believe this in their head, but they don't live it practically out of their heart. Christ satisfied any anger God would have toward you. I remember Pastor Joel saying years ago, God is not mad at you. He can't be. He turned it all on to Jesus. He may, not be, he may be disappointed in something you do, but he's not mad. He's not angry with you. God has overwhelmed your fall, little Adam. Believe it. You are pardoned by grace. Joseph Prince, I have a quote by him. I love this quote. Stop punishing yourself. Jesus has already been punished for your sins. Believe it. And let your conscience be satisfied. Can you say amen? Amen. I have lived under that curse right there in my life. My conscience was not satisfied because I knew my behavior wasn't right. And somehow I couldn't get it in my spirit, man. I couldn't understand this whole thing of overwhelming grace. I can still fall back into it if I'm not careful. So we have a pardoned. We've been pardoned. He gives us a position. Now that we're pardoned, Jesus offers us this position in relationship to Him. We who are following Him are, are now brothers since we've been adopted. We're brothers to Jesus because we're adopted into God's family. We're sons. We're joint heirs since we're brothers and sons. And we're destined to reign with Him in life here and in eternity. 
I'm just going to read about six passages of Scripture. No comment. Just let the Word say what it says right here. Ephesians 1.5. Don't try to write them down. Just put the... If you're making notes, just write the, the uh, reference. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Revelations 2.26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 22.5, there will be no more night in heaven. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And when he, this is Revelation now 5.8-10, when he, that is Jesus, had taken it, and that's a scroll from God who's sitting on the throne. When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy, we sang it this morning, to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons, individuals, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Amen. Next week, we're going to look at vindicating grace. I'll talk more about from these se- uh, this section right here. Vindicating grace and reigning grace. But let me close by hitting one more point. How are we going to, how does overwhelming grace cover us and work with us and change everything? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and then I'm going to look at what Stephen read earlier, Romans 6, 14. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, for sin is the sting that results in death. So you've got sin, and it's the sting that creates this death, and the law is the fuel that makes this sin sin have power. You tell a child, don't you touch that, what's he going to do? Had a very good turntable ruined by a boy named Stephen. And I said, don't you touch that. Came back later and he had his hand in that. I don't even have, he pulled the whole uh, flywheel out of that turntable. But if you tell somebody not to do something, they do it. The law tells you don't this, and you do it. And the, the power of the sin is the, the fuel of the law makes this happen. But look, Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you. It has no power, for you're not under the law. That fuel is not there. You are under what? Bingo. We are under grace. My friends, if we are not under the law, 
then sin has no dominion or power over us. We need to be living like that. I want to show you one last quote from Joseph Prince. He says, People who are living under guilt and condemnation are doomed to repeat their sin. If you're mixing the law and grace together, like we've been talking about, you're just in a, you're not in a good place. You're not in a happy place. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1800s, says, No doctrine is so calculated to preserve a man from sin as the doctrine of the grace of God. Spurgeon often preached on the doctrine of grace and understood it, understood that it could not be mixed with the keeping of the law. In fact, he goes on to say, a lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. And if we're trying to live in the law and grace at the same time, if you're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you're not a happy Christian. You just aren't. I know from experience, you're not a happy Christian. God wants to set you free from all of that law. He wants to help you just swim in the ocean of His grace. So let me show you this last quote I have. Stop mixing grace and law together. Live only by grace. Not only for you, but do it with your spouse. Don't expect your spouse to be under your law. Don't point out all this stuff. How are you going to do it with your kids? It's got to happen. We've got to express grace. Now, we expect them to to behave and to to honor us. But I'm telling you, there's a there's a formula that Christ wants us to know, and He wants us to experience it. And if we'll just practice what we experience with Him, then we can share it with everybody else. Hey, a lot of you. He talked about me being the oldest guy on the team now, uh, being here the longest. You didn't say I was the oldest. Did you? Well, I am the oldest. If you've been around Living Waters as long as I have, you know me. You know that I I was a rules guy. I was a rules guy. I had I had rules for the tech team, I had rules for the praise team, I had rules for the everybody. I didn't have rules for Joel. No, he wouldn't let me do that. God has set me free from being a rules guy. I want that for you. I want you to get out from under the curse of the law. Know the loving grace that will set you free. Let's pray right here as we go, and then we're going to dismiss. I hope you have a wonderful uh, Shabbat. This is our day to rest and worship, and I hope you'll do that. Give the Lord even more time today just to let Him speak to you. And I hope that the message today will just continue to ring and reign in your heart this week, and that you'll find your, your desires are to be free in that overwhelming grace. Father, we thank you for the time we've had today together. Thank you for the wonderful worship and song that we've had. 
Thank you that every song just spoke uh, so perfectly to the message today. I thank you that you're here, that you are uh, leading us and God is guiding us. You're, you're birthing in us new and precious things. Your grace has come to us to push out all sin and all sickness and, and to help us with our daily living. We thank you, Lord, that that grace is enough. And we, have, we don't need to look to anywhere else. We don't look to you know, self-help. We don't need to look to psychology. We don't look, need to look to any place but to Jesus, our Savior. For you are more than enough. And you rule and reign in heaven today. Father, I pray that if there's someone listening online right now, whether it's live or later, that they will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Simple, just to come and trust the finished work of Jesus and His overwhelming grace in their own lives. Father, would you just go with us now and dismiss us with your love. Be with this congregation this week. Use them in ministry and efforts of love to let people know that we are a people abandoned to God. We love you with all of our hearts and that we love people and are willing to give our lives and lay down our lives for other people. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Give me a smile. Thank you. Good to see you. Have a great week.